would please grab your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 13. Um, I'll let any kids that are still doing the bingo thing, uh, we still have a, a, a package under here with treasure stuff for those that do the bingo. So there's six hidden pictures here um, while we get caught up. And by the way, just remember if you're doing the bingo, the point is to find the one that's missing. There's one picture missing. All right. So we remember last week, Paul went through a very condensed version of the history of God's people in the Old Testament, basically from Abram through David, which was a span of about 1150 years. And then he jumped ahead to the coming of the Messiah in verse 23. And that was where we stopped last week. And it's where we're going to pick up this week. Okay, we're going to be going over verse 23 a little more in depth. And then we're going to read through uh, most of the rest of Paul's speech to the Jews at the synagogue in Pisidia, Antioch. All right. Uh, before we get into it, I want to encourage you to remember that Paul knows his audience really well, okay? And he knows the history of his people, and so he makes a lot of connections uh, that the Jews would understand, even though he's preaching this very new message about Jesus. And in this passage, we're going to see a couple of subjects uh, that serve as themes to his message. One is a continuation of the first part of the message, where he talks about God's people, like we did last week. And, uh, and then the more prominent message is about Jesus, who is God's Christ. He is the Messiah that the Jewish people have been waiting for centuries to see. And Paul's saying, bless you, my son. Paul's saying he's come, and then he explains what that means for the people. So let, let, let's bow together in prayer, and then we'll dig in, all right? Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to be here this morning. I thank you for uh, the folks that are here and those who are home uh, who are unable to make it today. I pray for those watching online as well. I ask that all of us, Lord, will hear the word and, and not just hear it, but receive it, that it might take root and bear fruit. We ask, Father, that we are a fruitful congregation. We ask that you will help us to love our communities. And, uh, and Father, I know that we're spread out. There's a lot of folks here from uh, kind of far away, from as far as Sherman and the colony, and, and but Father, help us in our own neighborhoods, in our own context, our sphere of influence, to love people, and more importantly, to point them to Jesus. Uh, Father, I know that, uh, that if, we, if we point people to Jesus, that is loving them, but I pray that we do it in such a way that it honors and glorifies you, and that it draws people. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen. All right. Uh, mentioning King David, Paul says this to his audience. He says, of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And if you're wondering why that little asterisk is there, um, you'll see. But firstly, though, we're going to talk about why Paul felt led to point out that Jesus was of the lineage of David. What, what, what's a lineage, somebody? Family tree, thank you very much. Lineage is a family tree. Jesus was a descendant of King David, uh, although he was also before King David, which is pretty wild. This is something that Paul should definitely point out to any Jewish audience that he's trying to convince about Jesus being the Messiah because it was a well-established fact that God had promised David all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, okay? He promised David that he was going to have a descendant who would sit on the throne forever and rule his people Israel for all time. And he would be known as the, the Mashiach, the Anointed One, the Christ, and his rule was going to be magnificent, just like David's, only better. And that the nation of Israel was looking forward to his reign because they knew that he would deliver them from the hands of their enemies. Now, at this point in history, okay, 
most of the Jews would have thought that a Messiah who came was going to be a great military leader and he was going to deliver them from Rome. And so it might have been confusing for them to hear that Jesus was Israel's savior while they're still under Roman rule. But the fact is, Jesus didn't come to save his people from the Romans. He came to save his people from what? Their sins. You remember who said that? It was the angel Gabriel speaking to Mary on the night that she learned she was miraculously going to give birth to the Savior of mankind. And this, this would have been a shift in, in, in paradigm for most of, of his Jewish audience, but the ones who'd been paying attention, right, to the, to the reports of Jesus' ministry might have been more likely to accept that he really was the Messiah, even, even if he looked a little different from their expectations. So then we also see that, that uh, these, these aspects, we see these aspects of who Jesus was and is, we see that those things fall in line with the perfect character of God who provided his Christ as promised. Now, there's that, that asterisk again, okay? Um, here's what we're doing with the asterisks. Whenever Paul, in, in this short text, when he makes a direct quote from the Old Testament, or if he makes uh, a, a reference to one of God's promised uh, Messiah, uh, you know, scriptures, one of his messianic prophecies as it's expressed through the prophets, we're going to add another little star there. Uh, the fact is, Scripture tells us that God is not a man, that he should change his mind, okay? And it says that he cannot lie. And it says that he will do what he has purposed to do, and his will cannot be thwarted. So his promises should hold a lot of weight. And any time we see one of his promises kept, it gives glory to God because it proves his faithfulness over and over again. Does that make sense? Okay. So Jesus is of David's line, and he's Israel's Savior, as promised, and Paul continues. Before his coming, John had promised, uh, or excuse me, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. Quick interjection. Uh, Jesus himself was baptized not because he needed to repent of anything, right? But because he is our perfect example, and every Christian should be baptized, or they have not been obedient to Christ, who said this is necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, the importance of baptism is, is pretty hard to overestimate, and I think many of us underestimate its importance. Um, do not put it off if you are a believer in Jesus. End interjection. Um, and as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. In other words, not the Messiah. No, but behold, after me, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Hey, look, an asterisk. Um, so for the second time now, Paul is referring to a prophecy about Christ. You may remember that Jesus referred to John the Baptist as the final prophet under the Old Covenant. And the Old Covenant was ushering in the Messiah. Okay, So this, this is a clear reference to Isaiah chapter 40. Uh, which, by the way, John's father, Zechariah, you may remember when his tongue was loosened, he alluded to this when John was born. You know, Isaiah 40, where it talks about uh, there's a voice crying out in the wilderness, make straight the paths of the Lord. Uh, so Jesus also referred to John as the Elijah who was to come, and he said there was no one greater that was born of woman than John, and yet, and yet, John pointed to the founder of the kingdom, as someone whose sandal he was unworthy to untie. And that's saying something. 
So Paul uses John the Baptist's reputation as a setup for his main point, which is about Jesus. So let's keep going. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. Okay, obviously, the most important part of this sentence is that Paul and Barnabas and many others have received the message of salvation that was sent by God. And most of what we're looking today, uh, what we're going to look at today, is directly related to that message. But something less glaring but still really important is the fact that Paul addresses two different groups of people rather than just one. And I think his point in doing so was to show that the Lord was drawing them together. Morning. If you go back through the gospel presentations in the book of Acts, you will see that Peter and Stephen refer to their audience as brothers in chapters 2, 3, and 7. And it's a common address because they were speaking to their fellow Jews. But this is the first, this is the first public presentation in the book of Acts that, that is directed at both brothers and sons of, uh, slash sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. So he's talking both to the descendants of Abraham and the non-descendants of Abraham, biologically speaking. But we learn later in Galatians, I believe it's chapter 3, that those who are of the faith of Abraham are descendants of Abraham. So in other words, he's, he's talking both to Jews and to Gentiles. And he's kind of lumping them together, as he should, right? They're both being reached out to. Remember, uh, as recently as the last chapter, the gospel was being proclaimed to the Hellenized Jews. Those were the Jews that were uh, really heavily influenced by Greek culture. But this is the first time that a mix of Jews and actual Gentiles is being preached to, at least that I'm aware of in Scripture. Okay? They're both being treated as God's people. And what that says is that God has blown open the doors of salvation. He's thrown it open. Paul goes on, still talking about Jesus. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. Now, this sentence structure is a little confusing. But what, what Paul's doing here, he's just recounting what had happened to Jesus as a result of the people's unbelief. Okay, hence the asterisk. Uh, the nation of Israel did precisely what the prophets in the Old Testament had said that they would do, which was condemn Jesus. Even though, even though he fulfilled every single prophecy about the Messiah that was supposed to come and save them. Who did, by the way, come and save them. If you ever read the Gospel of Matthew, and, and hopefully most of us have, but if you haven't, or if you have, just next time you read it, be aware of this. It's amazing and it's eye-opening just how many prophecies Matthew alludes to in there. You know, he, he's, he's writing, he's a Jewish disciple, he's writing to other Jews, and he keeps referring to the Jewish, the Hebrew scriptures from the Old Testament, proving over and over that these prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he's saying, look, Jesus is the Messiah that we've been waiting for all along. He does this about 20 times in his gospel as far as direct quotes. There's others that are um, allusions, but... So Jesus fulfilled dozens of prophecies in Scripture, you know, especially uh, from Isaiah, from Zechariah, from Micah, even from Genesis. The earliest passage that Jesus fulfills that I'm aware of is Genesis 3.15. 
where he says, the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. Whew. It's almost like God's known all along, huh? Anyway, continuing. You know, Christ himself said, all the scriptures point to him. Uh, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Again, they carried out all that was written of him, that they had a part in, anyway. And so God's promises are once again vindicated by the actions of his people. Jesus was mocked, he was beaten, he was mistreated, he was hated, he was unjustly executed, and all of this was foretold, every bit. By the way, for anyone who's never read it, there is a blow-by-blow description of Jesus' atoning death for sinners written seven centuries before it happened in Isaiah chapter 53. And if you've, if you've never read it, please consider writing it down in your notes to read Isaiah 53 and compare it to what the New Testament says about the death of Christ. And also, there, there are minute uh, descriptions, details of the crucifixion that are laid out very openly in the 22nd Psalm. You know, that's, that's the Psalm Jesus quotes from the cross when he says, you know, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Um, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And, and it's amazing to read these things in Scripture from centuries before Jesus' birth because Psalm 22 describes his crucifixion even though that method of, of execution hadn't even been invented yet. God knows. God knows. Even, even the burial in a borrowed tomb is mentioned in the Old Testament. Well, of course, this would be a terrible story if it all ended right there, but it doesn't. <laughs> Paul says, but God... Like uh, I've heard before, I think, Craig, I've heard you say this. Anytime you read the words, but God, in Scripture, pay attention to what comes next, okay? But God raised him from the dead, praise the Lord. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. So the main, probably most important thing here is the simple but miraculous fact that Jesus Christ was raised from death. He was truly resurrected from the dead. He didn't just pass out on the cross and recuperate in the coolness of the tomb, like some have speculated. He didn't have a stunt double, you know. Uh, the resurrection, it wasn't just a, ment a metaphor. Jesus literally, physically, historically rose from the dead by the power of God, which is the ultimate proof that everything he said was true. All of it. He truly is the Son of God and the Son of Man. He really is one with the Father who existed before Abraham. He absolutely is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And if he had only died, it would have been a wretched end to an amazing life, but instead he rose to life and brought an end to the wretchedness of death. And the resurrected Jesus was witnessed by people who were so certain of his truth that they would rather die than deny it. You know, in a world of fake news, it's pretty hard to trust what we see and hear sometimes, but when we see something or hear it directly from a, a personal witness who believes it so strongly that it, it changes their whole life, it tends to stick with us, doesn't it? 
You know, when, it, when we see the impact it makes in someone else, it sticks with us. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So, once again, Paul appeals to the history of the nation of Israel. He's reminding his listeners that what they're hearing is simply the next step in what they believed all along. You know, that God was allowing the children of Israel to see and hear what he had promised to their forefathers. And then he quotes a specific passage about the Messiah. So, so we can add a couple more asterisks uh, to promised here. But more importantly, we see what the good news is all about. The good news is about Jesus. Jesus Christ is the gospel. I know I say this a lot, but it's important to recognize the gospel is about who Jesus is and what God did through him. And as we can see from above, Paul has shared a very compelling picture of who Jesus is. He's, he's David's offspring, a.k.a. the Messiah. He's Israel's savior. He's the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises. But, but now, now he's getting into what God did through Jesus. And that starts with explaining what God did to Jesus, or at least what he allowed to happen. And that was according to his great plan. So he's already mentioned Jesus' death, and he's, he's currently still talking about the resurrection. And that might be, maybe the reason he spends so much time on it is that's the hardest part for us to, to wrap our brains around, you know, to understand. And there's also something really interesting uh, about that particular passage that jumped out at me. Paul applies the line from Psalm 16. He says, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He applies that to Christ rising from the dead. You know, in my mind, I've always connected, pretty much always, you know, the, the, the birth of Jesus to that famous phrase in John 3, 16, you know, where, where Jesus refers to himself as God's only begotten son. And yet, despite reading this passage, probably dozens of times, it was, it was, I was last Thursday years old when, when it just occurred to me, when the Lord revealed to me that begotten can also refer to his resurrection from the dead. I, I just thought that was cool. Anyway, uh, we're going to continue here. And as for the fact that he, that's God the Father, raised him, God the Son, from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. See, here's quoting from Isaiah 55. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, and that's Psalm 16, you will not let your holy ones see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that's, that's a euphemism for died, and was laid with his fathers, meaning buried, and saw corruption. In other words, his body turned back into dirt. And if you're looking closely, you may have noticed two more asterisks because these two passages that Paul quoted are both prophetic promises that were fulfilled in Jesus. So the, the first one was with uh, reference to the messianic oath that God had made to David. And the second one, this, by the way, the second one Peter also quoted in his first sermon back in Acts chapter 2. It refers to the fact that the Christ would not rot in the grave like King David and every other king's, earthly king's body did and will. Okay, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. 
Let that simmer for a moment. No corruption of any kind. Not just no rot, but no sin. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So there it is. The the rest of our message today is based in that sentence. What, What has God done through Jesus for his people? Firstly, friends, we are forgiven. We are forgiven. There are so many passages about the fact that we are forgiven. And I'm just going to quickly share a few. If you want to write down the references in your notes, uh, you can do that. You can read the whole passage later. But Micah 7.19 says that he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. Psalm 103.12 says he has removed our transgressions from us as far as the east is from the west. Ephesians 1.7 says in Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses. Jeremiah 31.34, which is quoted later in Hebrews, says that he will forgive our iniquity and will remember our sins no more. Acts 10.43 says that everyone who believes on Jesus receives forgiveness of sins in his name. As we looked at earlier today, Romans 8.1 says that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And there are dozens more. There are very few concepts in the Bible spelled out more clearly than the fact that Jesus Christ died to purchase the forgiveness of sins. The sins of the whole world. John says, and that that forgiveness that he died for is applied to anyone who comes to him in repentant faith and receives his grace and mercy. Without that faith, we would not receive forgiveness. We'd die in our sins, and then the penalty of God's wrath would be poured out on us, as it will be on all who reject this sacrifice. Thank God for his forgiveness, because apart from it, we'd have eternal separation from God to look forward to, rather than eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And I really, I want to make sure all of us are on the same page here when it comes to understanding the necessity of forgiveness, okay? Without forgiveness, every one of us who has ever committed a sin, and that's any one of us that can understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, we would burn in hell and we would deserve it. But God gave us a way out at great cost to himself. Now, if Paul had stopped there, we'd probably stop there too, but he didn't. He brought up something else, the fact that God's people are not only forgiven, but also freed from everything that God's law could not set people free from. Now, now this, this is something that might not, uh, it might not jump out as much to our Gentile minds as it would to Paul's original audience. 
which was either Jewish or at least very familiar with Judaism. But it's really valuable for us to understand this because, listen, the purpose of God's law, when you boil it down, it was not just to help his people be holy, but to show them how impossible it is for them to be perfectly holy. You know, at the same time, it it reveals to us that God's standard for acceptance is perfection. He does not accept anything less, and, and that fact is enshrined in the law itself. Deuteronomy says, Cursed is anyone who does not uphold the words of this law by carrying them out. In other words, if you fail to keep the law, you're under a curse. And that's not a happy thought. Since literally no one other than God's Son, has ever been able to keep the whole law. Because, see, to do it right, a person has to successfully keep not just the thou shalt nots, but also all of the thou shalts, and keep it not just in the letter, but in the spirit of the law. Only Jesus could do that. Everybody else fails. And so under the law, every person is under a curse, but in Christ. All of God's people are set free from the curse. There's a curse that falls on each of us when we fail. But in Christ, that curse is lifted. We're no longer hostage to our failure to keep the law. Instead, we we can experience freedom in Christ. He he perfectly fulfilled every jot and tittle. Those, Those are little marks, you know, the smallest letter and the smallest... Mark in Hebrew, the jot and the tittle. We are no longer under a curse. And that is just part, that's just part of what Jesus accomplished that the law could not, okay? Uh, The rest of our scripture references here are going to come out of Hebrews 9 and 10 in case you want to look them up later. But but let's see what else God's law was incapable of doing that, uh, that God did for his people through Jesus, okay? A couple more things. The author of Hebrews wrote, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, Instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, never, by these same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. In other words, the law and the sacrificial system that's been connected to the law, that can't set anyone free from sin. It can't make us perfect. Otherwise, he goes on, would they, the, the sacrifices, not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? It makes sense. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. Because, see, under the Old Covenant, blood had to be shed to signify atonement. But we see it from the next line here. We discover that was only a placeholder, okay? For it is impossible, he says, for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So so just in that super short section, there's two takeaways that we can add to our our previously noted fact that everyone is guilty before God's law. Those takeaways are, number one, the law does not and cannot provide righteousness. In his later epistles, Paul breaks this down a lot more clearly, but since, since he didn't do that here, I just want to flesh it out a little bit, okay? In Galatians and in Romans, Paul explains that everyone violates the law, and the law can't make anyone righteous. It also does not and cannot provide a cleansed conscience. Friends, how important is a cleansed conscience? 
I'm seeing a lot of people nodding. <laughs> Not nodding off, that's good. Maybe one or two of you. It's very important. You ever done something wrong and you knew it and you, you, you knew you just couldn't rest until you'd confessed what you'd done and, and sought to fix it? I mean, isn't it just awful when, when there's nothing you can do to make it right and so you're just floundering in guilt? It's terrible. Part of the reason I think that God provided the, the placeholder of these animal sacrifices was it kept people from feeling completely beat down by their guilt while they, they waited for the Messiah to come. And of course, it was a perfect foreshadowing for the blood of the perfect lamb who was to come and whose blood truly could pay for sins. From Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as the high priest or as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. See, what, what the blood of bulls and goats could never do was truly make God's people justified, you know, innocent and, and righteous in his sight. But the blood, the blood of Christ is able to purify us from our state of unrighteousness before God. Because when God looks at the blood-bought believer, he doesn't see our sins. He sees his son. He sees Jesus. Not only are we freed from the guilt of our sins, but we're afforded the righteousness of Christ in God's sight. That is imputed to us. We are no longer primarily identified as sinners, but as saints, holy ones. And we need to know that. We need to recognize that. We see why if we read on. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the... Per the purification of the flesh. He's talking about a, uh, an Old Testament ritual that was in the law. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? I know this is wordy, guys, but, but just bear with me. That, that's really a rhetorical question here, okay? He's saying that the law could never set us free from a truly guilty conscience, but Jesus can. And Jesus does. Do you understand the incredible significance of this? I mean, we're not just talking about those, those vague, you know, the, the feelings of guilt that we all get that you can't quite nail down. I'm talking about the guilt that we feel as the right result of the wicked things that we used to do and sometimes still do, even though we try really hard not to. By the way, don't, don't get me wrong. Um, if you are currently living in a perpetual state of known, intentional, unrepentant sin, then my friend, you are on borrowed time. And you need to reevaluate whether you are truly a Christian. That's not Mark. That's right out of 2 Corinthians 13, okay? Verse 5. If you are in a situation like that, stop it right now. Repent. But if you're a true 
blood-bought Christian and you're still dealing with a guilty conscience about sins that you've committed in the past, same thing, stop it. Right now. Stop beating yourself up. Listen, you're forgiven. You are forgiven. And tomorrow when, when, when you, you, you find yourself trying with all your heart to do what's right, but you mess up because you will, just like I will, you know, guess what? You're still forgiven. Can I get an amen? <laughs> in Christ Jesus, we have the forgiveness of sins. Rest in that. Have peace in that. His blood paid for that. And it still pays for that. Being justified in Christ Jesus is not based on our imperfect performance. It is solely and completely based in the perfect performance of Jesus Christ. It is Christ who provided the perfect obedience to God that we never could. Thank God for Jesus. All right, as we wrap it up, we're going to read just a few more verses from Hebrews chapter 10. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Now, that's good, but listen to this next part. This is really amazing. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Friends, listen. If God is making you more like Jesus, then rest assured that he already sees you as perfect by grace through faith. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to this. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he's quoting again from Jeremiah 31. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Folks, the law could never do all this. Uh, only Jesus could. God provided a perfect sacrifice for you and for me so that we could walk faithfully in his ways with our eyes Focused on Jesus, forward, not constantly looking in the rearview mirror at the sins that have already been forgiven. His resurrection proves that every promise he made is true. So, so let's walk together in the light of his goodness and accept his free gift of grace. But let's not cheapen it, you know, by neglecting our duty to trust and obey. Show your gratitude for his forgiveness by striving to honor him with your life and with your works with your words, with your thoughts. And this morning, you know, um, Everett's going to come up and he'll, he'll play a song. Um, I really feel like it's a good thing to have an invitation because if the Lord is moving on your heart, if you're feeling the Holy Spirit tugging you and saying, hey, you need to fill in the blank, whatever the Holy Spirit is telling you. If you, you need to put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, then you need to do that this morning. And if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, but you've never been immersed in water, uh, as the, the word teaches, we have a baptistry right here, and we'll do it today if you want. I want to challenge you and encourage you and invite you to do that if you never have. And if you have been baptized, you have confessed your faith 
in front of the body of Christ, but you're walking in known un, uh, unrepentant sin, stop it. Stop it. Turn around. Return to Jesus. And if you're somebody that just, you've done these, these things, but you're like, man, I'm still a mess up. Hey, join the club. Because I'm a mess up, and I'm thankful for Jesus. And if you feel like this morning, hey, I just, I just want to place membership in this body, come forward. This is your chance to do whatever the Holy Spirit's leading you to do, so just don't ignore him.